So welcome to a very special episode of Edgy Weather and this was the recording of our Selmas event that Judy and I attended. What a wonderful evening it was. And we're we're continuing that theme because we're recording this live in Jude's new car. Live in the car. That's it. <laughs> and we're still in the car park. <laughs> So, I hope we don't get shot in here. So we're that. keeping it pretty freestyle. It's quite dynamic. You know, we're we're keeping it going. Uh, um, we've had a few apple juices. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what are, what were the big takeaways from the evening? For me, I, I, I really felt that the big key messages or the big hitting messages were that health and well-being is incredibly important, and it's it's not about working yourself to the bone yeah you have to give yourself into everything but that doesn't mean forgetting about your why forgetting about do you know it's not about burying yourself in it it's about actually understanding yes you can look after yourself because if you look after yourself you do much better at doing that why that thing and that came out in claire lavelle who's one of the keynote speakers from the hive of well-being where she was saying that actually if you look after yourself you're going to be better at looking after your children in your class that was it and, and actually, therefore their attainment backing that up with research so there's there's uh, like uh, academic research out there that shows the impact that having high levels of teacher well-being the the, the kind of direct correlation between that and attainment and yeah that, that was a really important message for but me. also it makes perfect sense, perfect sense doesn't it course, like it's, yeah. it's actually quite simplistic that yeah. you need to have really good health and well-being. Yeah. I think one of the things that I took away from Claire's session was around um, having the kind of confidence and courage to switch off and yep. it's okay to have a balance and a work-life balance. And although we all work really, really hard, actually we shouldn't feel guilty about not working of a weekend, of a holiday. You know, we shouldn't feel guilty about leaving school yep. one day a week early or in the belt. Do you know, yep. like... We, these are all things which help to and have a really good balance. We can replenish our emotional energy, but we can't replenish time. And that bit about that's the bit that will that will disappear. And it's, it's maybe sometimes, and I thought that was really refreshing for her to say, actually, let's temper expectations. Mm-hmm. How often do people go out and say, I'm going to achieve this, 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 and this, and these are my grand plans. And I'm not saying it's not okay to have grand plans, but actually thinking about achieving small things first and then creating a momentum that comes yeah. from that has a massive impact on your well-being and that really resonated with me what she was saying about that definitely moving on to nancy clooney who is head teacher um of dunmarnock primary school in glasgow and she described to us her uh, school setting um i think it was an amalgamation of five different schools um i what i took from that was a hundred percent of young people were in SI. D one one or two, Um, and a hundred percent of the children in her in her school, and actually, huge regeneration in that area due to the Commonwealth Games, like the challenges. But actually, what I took from that was Nancy had a real sense of she knew her school really well. I think it was something like was it forty seven different languages were spoken in her school, Um, and she spoke to us about the importance of parental engagement and actually we need to think outside the box that mm-hmm. we need to think differently we need to ask our parents what would bring you into school yeah and i thought that that point there about recognizing that there's systems within which we operate but within all of those systems there's a wee bit of wiggle room and i loved that kind yeah. of phrase that she was using there and it was basically saying yes we have a system yes there are rules and regulations and things that we have to follow but actually you do have the autonomy there that little bit of wiggle room to be able to do what is necessary for your school your community yeah. your learners your parents and that was the bit and, and and for her to be she was so sort of enigmatic in the way that she was talking about it it was that she was so passionate about uh-huh. her community and I just thought it was it was brilliant. So she'll be a really good listen. Definitely, Definitely. listen back to her. Definitely. And then on to Neil McMillan, who is the director of communities at Kibble, mm-hmm. which is a, quite a unique school in Glasgow, um, where it has a secondary, a primary, and a secure unit. Um, and he talked to us from a social work perspective, because yeah. my, my understanding, he is a social worker. He's a social worker by trade, yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting when you think about mental health. Mm-hmm. And he focused a lot on um, the care system mm-hmm. and um, 
the different providers in the care system and, and some of the challenges around that. But also, now what did he say? It was a moral... Moral distress he was distress talking about. So he was the, spoken the, about. And a, a lot of what he says said was was so applicable to education. He, he spoke really quite eloquently about um, the commodification of of residential childcare, about the kind of effect of neoliberalism on things like residential care, public services, and how actually those competing agendas is, is taken away from from the reason that we got into the job. Mm -hmm. And actually, I found so much of that could be directly applied to, to teaching. He was talking about it from residential care, but actually so much of it could be <laughs> applicable to teaching because actually people are in moral distress because they came into a job for a specific reason yeah. and for whatever reason, through kind of financial constraints and commodification of things, that actually it's about how can we do this for less money, which means that actually the reason we got in there to do the job yeah. is much harder for us to do it. And I, I just and thought I mean, it was brilliant. It was great. And I mean, I took a few way, a few things from it. I took away the sense of um, all the things around the poverty-related attainment gap it's not okay to say it's not our job. Actually, our job is to facilitate anything that will allow learning to be better yeah. for young people. So if that's about engaging with families, parents, um, getting ch uh, children and their parents in over the summer, I thought that was really interesting. Um, I thought having a wee bit more of a work-life balance mm -hmm. um, was really important. One of the tips that came up was don't read your emails till after three o'clock yeah. so that you're actually not driven by the emails and problems and other yeah. people's issues. Um, so I really, really enjoyed the evening at Selmas, the forum. And I think for me, one of the biggest things was, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I have the meal. I mean, I love food, yes, <laughs> but it wasn't just the meal. It was, that it was a really nice the chicken balmoral. <laughs> yeah, the balmoral was wonderful. <laughs> but sitting with colleagues and colleagues from lots of different sectors, lots of different... Um, background settings and having that conversation with them about how how what was being said by the yeah. wonderful kind of keynote speakers about how, how that relates to, to you and your setting. I thought that was great. And you will see a lot more of some of the key quotes and see key questions from the evening on the Selmas Twitter page at Selmas, but the A is a four. Um, and you can continue that conversation on the Twitter um, chat either through Selmas or through Edgy Blether, where we'll post this episode, this bonus episode for you. Um, thanks very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, thank you so much. What an absolute privilege it is to be here today. Uh, and my deep gratitude to all of the members and leading uh, committee of Selmas for extending this very generous and prestigious invitation to me. It's also nice to have my dinner made for me tonight, so I'm just delighted for this. Um, by such a talented group of chefs as well, so deep gratitude to the students and the staff of St George's this evening too. Thank you so much. Um, yes, so my name is Claire Lavelle. I run a service called The Hive of Wellbeing. Uh, and yesterday, my own self-care was compromised. Um, I was presenting to around 400 S1 pupils uh, in a secondary, where I decided, I don't know what possessed me, but I decided that I would start off this session where we could all share some jokes. <laughs> um, this then also compromised the self-care of the staff who were in the hall at the time. And before me, all I saw was just a kind of visual, virtual whack-a-mole uh, of, of teachers going around saying, no, no, not now, don't shout out the joke now. Um, my favourite joke of the session was, um, why are maths books so sad? Because they've got so many problems in them. That was my nice one. I thought that was quite a good joke. So anyway, tonight should be less stressful for me and actually should be less stressful for yourselves, I hope. My main uh, aim tonight in this short time is to ask you to consider three aspects of a massive topic, which is self-care. So the first uh, thing I'd ask you to consider is the relationship. I want to highlight the relationship between the well-being of teachers and leaders and positive outcomes for our pupils. Secondly, I'd ask you to consider what do you believe about your work and how do these beliefs affect your performance and your well-being at work? And then lastly, to suggest that developing a well-being approach in our schools coming from a place of compassion, it might provide a common ground for all staff, pupils and families to meet and mutually benefit. I hope to get through all of this before the salad's wilt, um, so I will uh, crack on. 
So I speak tonight from my own place of experience and I use research and form material to support some of my thinking tonight. So just over two years ago, after 22 years in education as a teacher and as a head teacher, I set up the Hive of Wellbeing, which is a coaching service aiming to support educators with their emotional and mental health at work. As you can imagine, I've been inundated in those last two years. Um, I saw a need to support staff based on my own experience as a teacher and as a leader, where I recognise that when staff are not feeling in a good place, when reserves are low and when resilience is low, then supporting our young people in achieving positive outcomes and experiencing success can be inconsistent and even elusive. So as a professional coach now, I see teachers and leaders uh, and support staff every week in whole school sessions, group sessions or in one-to-one -one sessions. And here are some of the top five recurrent well-being themes for leaders. How exciting. <laughs> in five, staff relationships. At four, staff performance. Number three, negative culture. Uh, workload and switching off at number two. And the last one, number one, isolation. Particularly in regard to decision making. You're making decisions all the time as leaders. Who's got you is a question I ask a lot of leaders. The top five recurrent well-being for themes for teachers are a little bit different. Number five, switching off from work and the guilt associated with that. Number four, lack of self-efficacy. Just feeling I came in to do this job, it's all changed now, am I good enough? Number three, the staff relationships they have. Number two, managing anxiety. Really quite high up there with a number of our staff. As you can imagine, you know that yourselves. And number one, managing workload. In some of the research I've carried out, and I have some of the understanding of key components that teachers and leaders need to support them in their well-being and in turn support them in their work. Central to the issue of burnout or teacher stress is perception. I'm not saying that workload does not exist. I'm not saying those expectations do not feel real. But it's not always the actual workload or the actual student behaviours or the actual school leadership that causes stress, but the perception that individual teachers have of each of the situations. An example of this is where some clients have come to me in recent times and spoken about their relationship with colleagues or their line managers and what their expectations are of them. What's really interesting for me in those conversations is raising clients' awareness of what do they really need from those line managers or from those colleagues and is it realistic in terms of their expectations or could they find this support elsewhere at times? So it's just an interesting observation of mine. Um, backed up by some of the um, reports, we, uh, some of the research I've done, a report by Leithwood, Jancy and Steinbach looked at key components of what affects teachers' performance at work. They talk about capacity beliefs and they say that the capacity beliefs of teachers compared to context beliefs, personal motivation and rewards have the biggest effect on teacher burnout. Therefore, what we believe about our work affects how we feel and it affects our performance. And it seems such a truism. Yeah, of course, Claire, I knew that. Yet, how are we using this to get the best from our teachers and from ourselves? How are we exploring those beliefs with our teachers to see what is real for them and what can sometimes be a barrier to their progress? So it's about reframing some of these ideas. And a great deal of my coaching is based on that reframing and also asking clients to consider two more elements that come from the research. What is their perception of autonomy and their perception of personal accomplishment. So when I turn up to work every day, what do I believe I can control? And in turning up to work every day, what difference do I make and how realistic are these expectations? So when I ask about accomplishment, I ask clients, what's your idea of completion? What does it mean to accomplish and to finish things? And it may seem counterintuitive to us and it might seem downright, well, I don't know, but I'll let you decide. But sometimes I ask, please forgive me, to, I ask them to lower their expectations of what might be possible for a little while so that they can regain control of what is possible for them and use it as a platform for further success. Allow it to gather momentum. So perceptions and self-reporting on how we are feeling provide some insight into what may be going on in our classrooms. It's really challenging to demonstrate causation between teacher well-being and pupil attainment but a study carried out in 2007 by Professor Rob Briner at Birkbeck University pointed towards a significant correlation between staff well-being and school success. Three dimensions of well-being were measured during the course of the research. Feeling valued and cared for, feeling overloaded, and job stimulation and enjoyment. 
Data was collected from 24,100 staff in 246 primary schools and 182 secondary schools. And in the SAT scores that were used in the primary schools, 8% of variation was accounted for by teacher wellbeing, which is statistically significant and may suggest that teacher wellbeing is far more amenable to intervention and change than other factors known to strongly affect SAT scores, such as social class. Increases in the average levels of job stimulation and enjoyment reported by teachers were significantly and positively associated with value-added measure of pupil performance. And that suggested that where teachers within a school experience, where, where teachers within a school experience improvements in their feelings of stimulation and enjoyment, school performance may also improve. Just make your places really happy is the key message, I think. But first, <laughs> easier said than done, Claire. For secondary schools, there was also a significant and positive association between the well-being variables for teachers and key stage four results, as well as the value added measure based on progress between key stage two and key stage four. So the major implication of these findings is that if we want to improve school performance, we also need to start paying attention to teacher and leader well-being. How you and teachers feel on an everyday basis is likely to affect their performance and so, in turn, the performance of the pupils whom they teach most directly. So we need to, need to consider very consciously what these stressors are and what they really, really are, she says, breaking almost into a Spice Girls number. <laughs> I believe they're touring, again, not that I'm here to promote them, but some of their old tunes. <laughs> in coping with the stresses and the challenges in education, I often ask clients <laughs> questions about where they put their attention and their focus. I ask them, where does your energy go every single day? I think that long gone are the days of time management. Life has moved so fast, and only so much can physically be done in 24 hours. That's why you're all here today, because you've had enough and you need a break, and well deserved. <laughs> and you think to yourself, I must eat, and I must sleep, and the cost to my family is too great. So it's getting and setting clear boundaries as to what we need to do for ourselves to sustain ourselves is now a must-do on our to-do list. Emotional energy can be replenished, time cannot. And time spent trying to fix staff relationships, fix families, fix staff attitudes, may be time and energy misspent. Whereas using energy wisely and making energetic investments in relationships, including the one that you have with yourself, may be energy and time better spent. And this coupled with a strong belief that I cannot fix people and situations, but every day I can add value and I can add meaning. I think I read somewhere about a business executive who refused to open emails till 3 p.m. of a day because he knew that the problems his staff had in the morning would probably be resolved by 3 p.m. that day. And I like this because, first of all, he spotted a pattern in behaviour in his organisation and used it to his advantage. Very smart. Secondly, he knew sometimes people could be reactive. I don't know if you've noticed this in your schools. They can be very reactive. And sometimes they just need a bit of time and space to work things out. Rick Ginsberg wrote a paper called The Emotional Side of Being in Charge, Being the Boss. In this, he talks about research he conducted on leadership and how leaders deal with the emotional side of their work, particularly regarding decision-making. There were six lessons that he and his team gleaned from the research, including Accepting that leadership involves emotional experiences. Take care of yourself was another. And understanding your expressions. And as a leader, I knew the job involved my emotions. And I, and I knew I needed to handle them very well, as, as, as well as others. I didn't always get it right. Um, and very quickly became aware of how I needed to understand my own expressions of emotions. Because they're contagious, very contagious. And how you are seen to handle something is then imitated by others. But taking care of yourself was clear in Rick Ginsberg's work. Setting those clear boundaries, I'll say it again, is essential. And developing a strong belief within yourself about this being essential supports you in preserving your energy and feeling morally purposeful in taking breaks. No matter what others say or think, they are not you and they do not have the same needs as you to manage your emotional energy. They do it, th your, uh, they do it their way, you do it your way. Lastly, and very briefly, Eileen, I spoke earlier about how we reframe our relationship with work. I would also like to suggest that we consider reframing our culture in education regarding that. Gail Gorman, Chief Inspector at HMIE, in the recently published Corporate Plan for Education Scotland, because I've read it, I've done my homework and everything, 
she talks about the culture of empowerment, which I believe is right, worthy, and truly right, truly aspirational. But truly, where does our empowerment come from? I do not believe that it's solely down to the external, but it's down to also the internal lives we have and the purpose we have and aligning that with the external circumstances and needs. Recent research by social scientists on compassion as a resource within the workplace is a really interesting area and I think worthy of note in my closing comments, Ruth Beatner. Awakening Compassion at Work by Monica Warline and Jane E. Dutton in 2017 they carried out extensive research on suffering at work. They have used it, suffering at work. We don't tend to talk about suffering at work. But they use this and they talk about things just not feeling good for us, basically, due to organisational practices, relationship conflicts. And then they looked at compassionate practices which can alleviate the unnecessary suffering at times at work. They talk about four steps. Notice the suffering, making meaning of this in a way that aims to alleviate it, feeling empathic concern for those suffering, and then finally, taking action to reduce or alleviate suffering. When reading the book, I realized compassion is not for wimps. <laughs> Some of the scenarios she talks about, or they talk about, are really challenging. But when dealt with from a place of compassion, it can add massive value to so many lives, staff and pupils alike. So very, very, very lastly, a few challenging questions for you over dinner, over the wilted salads. I'm very sorry for holding this up. In our improvement culture, where at times some may feel that they are never good enough and they may feel continually depleted. How might we shift our focus onto what is working well and use this as a platform to replenish and renew? How do our current systems and our settings, or how could our current systems and our own settings enable us to put self-care and service to young people at the heart of everything? And how could such systems be developed to support wider systemic change? How might compassion become a resource for all staff in supporting self-care and improving performance? Thank you so much for listening to me today. Please expect a big hook to come. And secondly, I need to warn you that all of my management team have just sent me a message individually saying, please don't swear or offend anyone. <laughs> I'll try my hardest. That's, that's as far as I'm prepared to go. So good evening and thank you very much to the Committee of Mass for this opportunity. I have to say, this is the first time I've ever been billed as a palate cleanser. I get called a lot of names, but a palate cleanser is the first. I really have a story for you tonight, and it's the story of my school and our journey with health and wellbeing. Um, but before I start explaining the approach that we've taken to health and wellbeing and raising attainment, I think it's really important that I give you a wee bit of context about our school. It's a fairly new school. It was opened in 2007 when I became head and it opened following an amalgamation of five schools. Schools that all sat in communities with very long and proud histories. I realise that most of you are from this side of the country, but if you were in the city centre and there was a house there, that would be my catchment. And it goes all the way out past Parkhead. It goes all round Bridgeton. It's a huge area, taking in um, very diverse catchment. I think that's the polite way of saying it. And, and people didn't know each other, that's the truth. So, um, in a recent survey, I double-checked this today. I don't normally check facts, but I thought, I don't know anybody here, so I'll be. <laughs> So it came out in February, and it was a campaign to end child poverty. It was found that the ward that my school sits in, Ward 9 in Glasgow, has 49% um, of our children live in poverty. And I double-checked, the highest rate in Edinburgh was 35%, and that's in Sighthill and Gorgie. So just to give you a wee comparison, 94.6% of my children live in SIND 1 and 2. And all the other 5.4, I double-checked, 
95% of them live in SIMD 1 and 2. They just live in houses that didn't exist when the census was taken. It's an area that's undergone huge regeneration due to the 2014 Commonwealth Games. There's lots of new housing, new amenities, and new infrastructure. It was really exciting watching the changes come, but for many of the families who were living there, it was a very distressing time and upsetting. Families were dispersed. People had lived up same close with their granny and their auntie, and suddenly they were being spread everywhere. <laughs> And once the Commonwealth Village was changed back into housing, we took in many new Scots. I double-checked again before I left school this morning. We have 47 different languages spoken in the school. So, it, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Now, all of you are here because you're like-minded people. You're people who want to do the best for your children and the families you work with. But if we decided that if we were to make a difference, we had to interrupt this cycle of poverty. We had to change what was going on for these children and their families. So the approach we have taken is just slightly different. Um, go, go, go. So like every school, and I, I bear this in mind, um, when I tell you the rest, you might understand. I do say to myself every day when I go in, my core business is teaching and learning raising attainment. I have to say, I maybe say that at half past six in the morning and by 20 to seven we're on to something else. But I do say it every morning when I walk in the door. We all know that parental engagement helps raise attainment. But you're not going to get parental engagement if people are worried or isolated or have mental health issues and all the myriad of, of issues that we face on a daily, uh, a daily basis. In my school, though, we've bucked a trend. And my deputy head, just a few weeks ago, came into my office, slammed the door, shut it, and I'm not spared because he swore. Um, but he said, Nancy, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. This place is buzzing. There's parents everywhere. Um, it's like Buchanan Street on the Saturday before Christmas. <laughs> now, for those of you not lucky enough to come from the right side of Demi, <laughs> The nearest I can come is the Royal Mile in August, but twice as busy. So my friends watch this if they're at a meeting in my school, and they despair. And they say, you know, we write to our parents and we say, we're having this, or we've offered this, or we've worked really, really hard. Please come, and we get three, or we get two. How do you get them in the door? Well, my response is always simple. Have you actually asked them? Have you actually said, what will you come to school for? I mean, I've got many parents who are not literate. Why would they come to a phonics workshop? How will they even be able to read phonics when it doesn't start with a th? You know, so <laughs> it's nonsense. I've got a poster in my office and in my deputy's office, and it just says, nothing about us without us is for us. And that's the thing that we link everything to. I do have to say that I'm very close friends with a, a very wise woman who lives in Edinburgh. Um, and she said to me when I got the job and we've done a lot of work together, Karen said, Nancy, feed them. I'll be honest, I went for the interview at Dilmarnock and I've still got the jacket. It's a size eight, so you can imagine <laughs> it laughs at me. I open the wardrobe and it laughs. And so when I retire, I will get back. I know she said feed the families, but it's dead hard when you feed families not to have some. <laughs> anyway, not only am I blessed with a fabulous staff, I have the best third sector partners and statutory partners you could ever hope for. I've got people who really think out the box. People who said, let's do it differently. Yeah, we know that that's what the structure says. Yeah, we know that's what the guidelines say. We'll stick to it, sort of. But we'll go sideways. And that has really helped. So we did a two-prong attack. We knew that we had to work with the parents. And we had to get parents in a good place if we wanted to raise attainment. 
So this all started probably about 10 years ago now, long before PEF, long before we had money. Two parents came to me separately and said, Nancy, would you teach us to read and write? Their children, both of them were going into a P3 class and they had just coped with the P1 and 2 work, but they realised that their skills were limited. So what we did was, I did teach them to read and write, but we thought if they're admitting it, how many parents are? And we started a homework class. But what we decided, and as I say, hats off to my staff, and I realise I work my staff much harder than you, I'm not telling them about you and all the things you said. Um, <laughs> My, no, my staff will have a fit tomorrow of the year. Where's Scott? Um, it's a really simple system that we've set up. It has been copied across the country that the staff do the homework with the children and the parents cook a two-course meal. We provide everything. Now, there was no point us trying to teach them to make the beautiful food that we're getting here. So we asked them, what do your children eat? What do you eat? And it was very simple things, fish fingers, chicken nuggets, etc. But we taught them how to make it from scratch. Many of our parents also have um, issues. Electricity gets switched on simply for cooking. Uh, and they're very conscious of how much money is, is on their meter. So it had to be quick things, but it had to be healthy. But we also decided we were sticking rigidly to recipes, so if it said spinach, spinach went in. If it said ginger, you know, that stick thing, that went in. Now, sometimes that took a wee bit of persuasion, as in, I ate this, <laughs> um, But eventually, eventually, we found that taste changed, cultures changed. Every meal there was, so, sorry, the parents cooked. While the meal was cooking, the children had a play session outside with one of our third sector partners, and then we all sat down together to eat. Really simple. There was always salad on the table and fresh bread. Obviously, at the beginning, it took a wee bit of persuasion, but it's really interesting now if a new family join us and we pass the salad bowl and they pass it on, you hear the other children saying, we should try it, it's okay, it's good, you know. So things are changing, but we're doing it with the parents because the parents used to say, well, they'll not eat that green stuff. I the will. I the will. You know, they don't really get too, too many choices. So we now have every week maybe 120 people attending that get this food. And as I say, all of this was funded long before PEF, um, from different agencies, social work were very good to us, local businesses were very good to us, and you find that it's amazing. Um, we did use food share and, and anything else we could get our hands on, but we always managed to feed them. So that had been running for a few years when one mum said, I'm going to really miss this this summer when it's, you know, this was last week, second last week. Where I live, I don't know my neighbours, they all work. I don't speak to anyone. This is the only socialising that I do. So the group of us that, that run the homework club looked at each other and we said, Mum will open the school for the summer. Now it sounds really easy, all that it was. Um, we'll not get into the ins and outs of that. that then I might swear, I have to say. Um, we managed to get a wee bit of funding from children in Scotland and we put out the announcement that the school was open for the summer with a big but, but you have to come with a parent. I don't do childcare, I'm a teacher and, and I'm not taking children during the summer holidays because I would have had 470. No, you had to come with a parent. We had no idea if anybody would come, but we said registrations on Tuesday night, if you're interested, please come. We had funding for 30. And that night, 170 turned up. <laughs> we decided that we would take them all. So we went back to our funders, with polished our necks a wee bit, went back to our funders and um, persuaded them that it was a really good thing to do. And it worked the same way. The children played. Um, the parents had something to do, or we wanted them to do something. And then we would all eat together. I'm not a parent, 
But for that first day, I know how all of you who are parents feel. So the children all came in outside with peak. They were all having fun. And we had set up the school as near cafe-like as we could. So they're sitting with their tea, nobody look, everyone at their phone, and all you could hear was as they tapped away. Can we go now? Is it done yet? No. This is boring. I have to. And what we're here to do? Well, what do you want to do? Oh, they had a wee think. And then they got a wee bit cheeky and said, well, if we've got to come, can we get our hair done and our nails done? Absolutely. That night, honestly, don't, don't become my friend and don't give me your phone number. A wee bit like Eileen, I will use you. So it was straight on to the local colleges. They were all on holiday, but can you get some students in here tomorrow? And they got their hair done and their nails done. And if you're feeling good and you're looking good, your dander's up. We had things up our sleeve that we were introducing. Housing, debt collecting, citizens' advice, counselling. But what we said was, if people want to come to you, they'll come. Please don't go around touting for business. We had people like the police um, in every day, but please take off your hat and have a coffee. Please become a person, not the, the policeman. And it just worked really, really well. We introduced yoga, which was successful, but some parents asked for a boot camp, so we managed to get a, a local ex-army PT instructor to come in and do that. It just worked really, really well. Our parents were used to cooking, and that first year we weren't allowed to cook. So I think it was week three, someone said, it'd be nice to cook the dinner. Politics didn't allow us to use the kitchen, so we hired a marquee that night and we set it up, and the next day, parents were in cooking lunch. That just happened to be the day that the local MSP, the papers, and the local councillors came. I say I'm in a new school. I've got the state-of-the-art kitchen. And there was quite, oh, it was just coincidence. It was funny that later that night, later that night, I got a phone call just saying it was a wee bit of a misunderstanding. <laughs> Years two, three, and four, we've used the kitchen. Um, so following on from the success, is it too long? I've got two pages still. <laughs> oh, please, you'll wait a wee minute. I'll go fast, I promise. Right? And I'll miss out bits. Um, following on from that, we thought we can't let this go. And so things continue in our school. Some of our parents found great solace from the counselling. We couldn't afford to do one-to-one -one counselling, but we offered group counselling. Now, if I was to say to parents, I've got a group counselling session, nobody would come. So we call it the blather, and you get a rolling sausage or toast or whatever, and they come in their droves. And yes, they do talk big things, suicide, suicidal feelings, um, divorce, all the problems that they're going through. So it truly is making a difference. We've done lots of other work that if you're interested, just give me a wee phone at school. I'm just going to skip, skip, skip. Um, skip that. Dun, dun, dun. I just have two of these stories. So what has happened? What has changed? Parents now engage. We now have to not sell, we don't sell anything, but give out tickets for things like phonic workshops because they're so oversubscribed. Right? Maths workshops, parents get tickets and they're gone within 20 minutes. Parents want to now be with their children and learning. Um, Parents come now and will ask all sorts of things. I did say I wasn't going to tell this story, but Margaret had said do. One parent asked to see me just a few weeks ago. Come in, Margaret, cup of tea, what's wrong? Well, I'm just Nancy. What do you think about um, birth control? Um, yeah, so I'm on the coil and I don't think it's working. She's got eight children. No shit, Sherlock, you know. No, it's no Margaret. We'll need to think about something else. And just last week, a parent came in, one of my Polish parents, and she was very polite and very worried, and she sat down and she said, Miss Connie, you know, we go to weddings and we go to christenings and it's coming up to First Communions. 
And every time we go, we see people do traditional Scottish dances. And I'd love to join in, but I don't know them. And I said, right, well, I don't know very many, but I'll help you if you like. So she did this, and I thought, oh, it's the Gay Gordons. I'll quote the Gay Gordons. And she said, no, 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 Miss Clooney. I think it's called the slosh. <laughs> and that's why one afternoon, blaring from my office for two hours, was beautiful Sunday as we did the slosh. Now, some people would say to me, in fact, some of my teachers said to me, all of this stuff, and including the pages that I wasn't allowed to say, it's not our job. I would argue that it most certainly is our job. If you want children to really engage with learning and for it to be effective, then they have to have happy homes. If I have children worried, is mum safe? Do I have a house to go back to? Will I have a dinner tonight? They are in no frame of mind for learning. So we have happy children, we have happy parents, and I'm delighted to say that our results have gone sky high. And my maths results are in the top three of Glasgow City Council which is really something considering what we're working with. <laughs> I have to say, just by chance, when I was, I want to say a young head, but that would be wrong. A new head, <laughs> a new head. The man that really encouraged me to take risks, and I didn't know that, is sitting at my table tonight. And we had a wee chat, and we were talking about how the systems, we all work where there's systems and they're tight. Well, systems are there, but as Ian said, there's always wiggle room. Look for the wiggle room, and that's what we are masters at at Domarnock. You are all more than welcome to come and see it or have a chat with me. But my question to you is, when did you last really challenge the systems that we work in to find that wiggle room to make a difference for a family or a group of families to improve life chances for that child that you work with? Sorry, I hope you're not starving. So during the week, um, Nicola Sturgeon was talking about imposter syndrome and um, I'm, a, I suppose, a social worker to trade in, in, a, in a, a room with 150 teachers or something like that. So I'll, I'll just be happy to get out uh, alive. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to stick uh, strictly to my notes because um, uh, anybody that knows me knows that um, Billy Connolly and I have similarities in that we often go off in, in complete tangents. And today I was presenting on this subject at the Central Hotel in Glasgow to uh, an international symposium, which was great because most people's first language wasn't English and probably they didn't understand half of what I was saying. And so I had this lengthy presentation that lasted an hour, which I'm going to try to cut down to 10 minutes or something like that. So please bear with me. And what I've done is I've made lots of boxes over the things that I wanted to say, not covering everything that's on this lengthy presentation. And... Um, uh, so hopefully it's not too disjointed and it makes some sense to people, um, but it's, it's, it's loosely about childcare um, and, and perhaps not directly uh, about teaching. And following on from Nancy's uh, palate cleanser, um, I've never uh, stood up and 10 minutes later, judging by the service that will happen after me, 150 people have a sweet taste in their mouth. <laughs> um, so anyway. Um, so much has been written and researched about the impact of morally questionable practice in care and education upon children, but much less um, about the impact of the adults who find themselves at the centre of these practices. And this is exemplified by, people might be aware of the Root and Branch Review of Residential Childcare in Scotland, where children um, are being, or the views of children are being sought about, about their care uh, by the state. And children are also identified as the source of adults' distress uh, in working with them, for example, through vicarious trauma. But like I say, few studies actually examine the impact of the very system that uh, we as adults work in within care upon our own uh, mental health. A kind of philosophical question, uh, which is important in the context of what I'm trying to say today, but beyond this presentation, is about care. And, and if we are paying for it, 
Is it really care? So care has become a form of emotional labour, uh, where we exchange our emotional and practical capacity to care for money. But I don't want to get into, uh, into too much into that at the moment, and it's beyond this presentation. But having worked in and around uh, residential childcare for the last 25 years, I've seen significant changes in the care system. And perhaps one of the most significant changes has been the commodification of care through which the child as a person has actually uh, increasingly be lo been lost. And what I mean by commodification is that children essentially have become a commodity caught up in a process of procurement and commissioning where local governments are seeking more bang for their buck in a climate of austerity. So the emergence of neoliberalism in UK politics has created a market approach to care provision and that's only compounded this. So what I mean by the market is that uh, we have a mixed economy of private, government and charity and social enterprise care providers all in competition with each other to care for children of the state and uh, Eileen mentioned that we are a, a, a charity at Kibble, or we are a social enterprise, or we are a business with a charity cloak, I'm not quite sure actually. But frameworks for procurement and commissioning have become a key part of the lexicon of residential childcare in Scotland and across the UK. So this, I suppose, is, is where the connection is with moral distress. Um, so Andrew Jameson, who is a professor um, in the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska in the States, his areas of philosophy and ethics of environmental health, uh, his seminal work in, in nursing and practice ethical issues uh, he coined this idea of, uh, of moral distress and explores its presence in the medical field and uh, the field of nursing. So the concept of moral distress is based on the premise that those who are engaged in morally just work have the values which underpin their vocation compromised by intractable structures and systems. So it's the violation of our core values and obligations that makes moral distress um, a powerful negative phenomenon. Have people heard about this moral distress? No. Fantastic, my next one. Great, great. This is like today, all over again. Okay, so, uh, but one of the things I decided to do was go back to university and I did a master's degree in, in, in residential childcare and, um, and it was during that time that I was doing that that I discovered this concept of, of moral distress and it really rang a bell with me. You know, it really had resonance. Um, and the question that formed in my mind was, um, does moral distress have meaning in residential childcare? Because there was a lot about it that, 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 that sounded familiar to me. But it was primarily, as I say, um, research in, in, in the nursing uh, profession. It's interesting the way that my career has, has turned out because, as I said, I, I was a youth worker and I trained as a social worker. And, um, and, and when I was going through that, I never realised that at some point in my career, um, I would be selected for a job based on my business acumen uh, rather than my capacity to care for children. But increasingly that seems to be uh, the case and I think perhaps the last couple of jobs I've had, that's what's been important. I worked for, uh, in the private sector in childcare for a few years. I left the charity sector and I worked in the private sector. And the best way that I can describe it is um, on occasions when there was an angry, emotional kid who, who smashed a window I didn't know whether to hug the kid or hug the window. Uh, and that, that epitomises uh, private sector childcare uh, to me, and that's, that's, what it, that's what it reminds me of. But in terms of moral distress, as I say, it was, it's, it's, it's no surprise that the ideas around about moral distress came from uh, um, the medical field, primarily in emergency care and end-of-life care, where very difficult moral decisions have to be made. Um, such as switching off a life support machine for somebody or continuing with uh, aggressive and, and, and distressing care uh, for, for that person. There's no right answer. It's, it's a difficult decision. But a number of causal factors are recognised in terms of uh, in the research in relation to moral, uh, moral distress. And they include, unsurprisingly, issues like inappropriate use of resources, uh, continuing aggressive care when nobody will pull the plug, uh, inconsistent care planning, um, lack of resources, uh, financial constraints, pressures to reduce costs and therefore compromising care. And um, those were the things I suppose that I could recognise uh, in, in, in residential care. Largely because we were in this 
given this market, you have know, so public care, local authorities, you have, um, you have uh, private organisations, and you have um, you have the charity sector, which is I don't know if it's the charity sector, but um, all competing with costs being driven down and, and quality of care being compromised. So, so what happens to the people who are in, in the midst of that? What happens to the people? Because it's, it's, I never came to, uh, to, to care or to work in care um, to make some of the decisions that I have been making over the last 10 years. Um, I came because uh, out of a sense of, of social justice, fairness, of wanting to help children improve their lives. Um, and some of the decisions uh, that we have to make uh, in this work now are, are, are very distressing. It's the only way that I can describe it. So when we look at the literature around about residential care, we contrast it with the causal factors around uh, moral distress. There's lots of similarities. So this issue about inappropriate resources and continuing care, several children find themselves in, uh, in, in placements which are not appropriate, languishing in, in circumstances where uh, placements have irretrievably broken down for considerably longer than is necessary while ineffective interventions are continually attempted, attempted and, and, and continue to re-traumatise uh, those children. And um, I mentioned that inconsistent care planning was a feature of moral distress. And, and in residential childcare studies have found that local authorities uh, frequently have no care planning for young people, a study in 2014. And in one Scottish study, around 10% of children in residential care did not have a complete care plan on file, and 17% of the sample care plans were not fully addressing the issues uh, of educational needs uh, or indeed other needs of young people. Communication issues is another area. Well, that's an area for everyone, I think. Um, and also this idea of managed care. So what we have now is we have social workers or social work departments or local authorities who are brokers of care and uh, organisations like Kibble who are providers of care. And essentially, it's not a, way, a good way to describe it, but the local authority owns the child. They decide what happens. Uh, they decide how much they're going to pay sometimes, or the government decides how much they're going to pay because we have these frameworks of commissioning and, um, and procurement. Interestingly, um, I'm having an article published, published next year in the, in the Journal of Ethics, uh, Social Work Ethics, around about this, this, uh, this subject. And um, I gave it to a commissioner, someone who worked as a commissioner for local authorities for residential childcare placements. And he read the article and he said, I don't see the connection. I can't see the connection between um, neoliberalism, the marketisation of care, and the moral distress of these staff that you're, you're talking about. And for me, that was, that was hugely telling. I mean, that was, that was, that was a really interesting uh, uh, thing for, for, for somebody to say. And I think that was because he was a commissioner. But maybe I'm biased. Right? <laughs> and this is someone who used to uh, work directly in, in, in residential childcare. So parallels can be drawn between lots of findings around about moral distress and the contemporary uh, realities of residential childcare. So market-focused approaches to placement, provision in residential care have resulted in this purchaser-provider relationship, which I mentioned before, between social workers and uh, who are the care managers and residential childcare workers who are the care providers. And these tradition of, of market principles as I say, the purchaser retains the power. And this plays out in very stark terms when you work uh, in this field uh, where children are commodified, as I mentioned, and placements are traded. Um, unsurprisingly, research has found that a significant association between moral distress scores and a tendency to leave the job uh, exists. No surprise. People experience increasing moral distress and, and they simply say I can't do it anymore and that's what I was seeing around about me um, in, in, in the work that I was doing because essentially they choose to leave the profession because their moral integrity is systematically eroded and the authenticity of their moral self the thing that brought them to this work it, it is threatened so there's been huge studies on this subject primarily in, in, in America because that's where the concept comes from and also um, uh, in, in, in Japan, in Australia, and mostly in, in medical care, there's uh, some emerging literature in social work, nothing in teaching, and nothing in, in residential childcare, but we'll soon, we'll have a publication next, uh, next year at least. Um, 
So how do we go about ameliorating this, uh, this moral distress? You know, despite the extensive literature that exists on the subject of moral distress, few advances have actually been made in terms of understanding how it, it might be uh, ameliorated. And it seems to continue uh, unabated, certainly, in, in my opinion. A, a, a small quote as well about the issue of, of professionalism I wanted, to, I wanted to make. So this, this quote is from a, a journal uh, of ethics, the Journal of Ethics and Social Welfare. And, and these uh, authors say, the dominant discourse of professionalism claims a false neutrality, objectivity, and emotional distance. We are too easily cajoled into a palatable consumption of outrageous justice. Now that's interesting because one of the things that's happening at the moment in residential childcare is the professionalizing of residential childcare. And in fact, what's happening is professional structures are being used, in my opinion certainly, um, to strip away the moral face and the human face of, of residential childcare. So we have issues about, interestingly today, we were talking to colleagues in Belgium, we were talking about professional closeness. We talk about professional distance. We talk about all the structures around about not having relationships with children, not having relational childcare, and keeping them at a distance. Um, and it's interesting because if indeed moral distress is, a pervas is, is as pervasive in residential childcare as it is in nursing care, the question is, why is there no voice of dissent? Well, I think that part of it is about being able to have a conceptual framework to explain what's happening, which is why I'm thinking about moral distress, and that's something I think we can hang our, our hat on and make sense of it. But what might seem like apathy may in fact be um, a process called system justification. And what that means is that perhaps residential childcare workers adapt ideologies and belief systems that serve as excuses and justifications for existing social, economic and political arrangements as a means of coping with the status quo, for example, professionalism. So when we consider the issues of power and powerlessness as a defining feature of moral distress, this could reasonably be understood as a survival strategy for residential childcare workers as such mindsets might reduce the cognitive dissonance that comes with moral distress and thereby ameliorate their distress. It's no surprise to me either that one of the, one of the, one of the ways of ameliorating the distress is, they talk about is, is rocking the boat. So confronting this moral injustice, challenging the dominant discourse. Um, Mark Smith, or Dr. Mark Smith at, at the University of Edinburgh, who I personally think is one of the most progressive uh, academics and, 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 and thinkers in relation to residential childcare um, challenges that dominant discourse. And interestingly, recently in the media uh, last year, he was absolutely vilified, and people may or may not be aware, but vilified and, um, and, and accused of being um, an, an abuse apologist. Um, that's what comes of rocking the boat. <laughs> and uh, so you can understand the, uh, the dynamics of power that exist in relation to particularly issues around commodification of care, neoliberalism, very powerful structures against which you want to rock that boat. It's not going to happen very easily. And interestingly, social pedagogy has gained prominence in the UK, particularly in the field of residential childcare. And I think that that's no surprise. There's a covert backlash, primarily from academics, because at the heart of social pedagogy is an ethic of care. They talk about something called Haltung. And Haltung is about your stance, your position, your moral position of care. So it's, so it's no surprise that this is gaining interest. And I think this is partly about trying to address some of the issues that are erasing the moral fabric of our work. This is just a thought piece. Um, there's so much more I could say. I got the, the nod from Eileen. I'm sorry if it was a bit more dry than the, uh, the previous ones, but hey, it's about a bit of variety. Thank you very much.